I think we are at a tipping point now where if you're not sustainable, you're going to be called out, not just by the younger generation. Look, there's a Greta Thunberg in every company now. So if we ignore the youth, and that's your employees, and that's the Gen Z, Gen uh, Millennials, Gen Y, I think you do so at your own peril because never before has a generation had so much power than the young now. I mean, your daughter, my kids, I mean, they call you out. And I'm talking political power, economic power, because in the next 15, 20 years, what we're going to see is this transfer of wealth from the baby boomers down to the millennials. An average millennial is already in their late 30s or in their early 40s now. So in the, imagine, fast forward 10 years, they're going to be the biggest decision makers for the family, right? And the biggest spenders. And they really care about values. So unless you as an organization resonate the values they stand for, they will boycott you like nobody's business. Welcome again to Global Wellness Conversations, the official podcast of the Global Wellness Summit. This is your host, Kim Marshall. Okay, people, this week we are talking to a true powerhouse, and I do not use the word lightly. See if your phone or computer doesn't just vibrate when she talks. She's so full of energy, positivity, and impactful information. We're talking about Aradna Kuala, the CEO of Aptimine Partners, which she explains is a strategic consultancy combining hard data and decades of experience to advise governments, emerging destinations, and public and private organizations on sustainable tourism development. Last year, in fact, the International Hospitality Institute named Aradna one of the 100 most powerful people in global hospitality and one of the 25 most influential women in hospitality. She is regularly asked to speak at places like the UN, the G20 Summit, COP27, TEDx, and other major leadership gatherings around the world. Take a peek at her LinkedIn post and you'll see her hobnobbing with political, business, and tourism leaders from across the globe. All that is well and good, but you know, Aradna is even more. She is a beautiful, brainy, and proud brown woman, always dressed to the nines, who is actually a warrior for the causes of diversity and inclusion. She enraptured the audience at the Global Wellness Summit in Tel Aviv last fall with her bold take on sustainability, gender equality, and the data-driven sense it makes to invest in femtech. She illustrated how antiquated and unbelievable the disparity is when it comes to things like women working in the executive ranks of tourism, as well as the inclusion of women-specific studies in health research. The data is undeniable, but in our conversation, Aradna makes the case for radical change. And then there's her opinion on what Gen Z and millennials have to do with your business decisions. So sit back, Relax, or better yet, sit up and be energized as you listen to my new professional bestie, Aradna Kuala, one of the most unforgettable business leaders I've interviewed yet. Wait till I read this bio because I can't even get it out of my mouth. How can one woman be this accomplished? Aradna Kuala is globally identified as an authority on travel, tourism, and hospitality. And she has two decades of experience without one wrinkle in 70-plus countries in four continents. Okay, she's the CEO and founder of Aptimine Partners, 
which advises clients. But what she does is such a wide range. We'll have her tell you. Your title, the title of your talk, which rocked the house, was Busting Taboos and Making Billions. And you finally said the word vagina at the summit, which is what we really needed to hear. So welcome, Aradna. Kim, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Okay, so tell, if somebody asks me, what do you do? If they ask you, what do you do? How could you put it in a, you know, 30-second soundbite? What would you say? So my elevator pitch is generally that I'm a global expert in travel, tourism, and hospitality, and that's that. That's that. Well, it goes a lot further than that. <laughs> um, so let's just say some of the places you work with. The World Tourism Forum out of Lucerne, Switzerland. You talk uh, with the UK, Benelux, and Scandinavian markets, Europe, Asia. You speak all over the place. You're all over YouTube. Um, And the next thing I think you told me you're going to is the COP27. Do you call it COP27? COP27 in Egypt. But yes, we work in 75-odd countries, um, which is pretty much all over the world. (laughs) And it's interesting. My work is... It's not in a UK as much or a France where we already have like 85 million visitors. So a lot of my work is helping governments and destinations, which are really frontier markets and emerging destinations. So how do you then come up with a meaningful offering and how do you even decide if you want tourists and visitors? Mm -hmm. And if you do, what kinds and how do you get them? And what does that mean in terms of infrastructure? How many airports, how many hotels and what kind of visitors and... How do you want your local community to mix with them? So it's fun stuff. But you also talk a lot about sustainability. And I will tell you, I think the busloads I saw in Israel this week, I'm like, I think the pandemic's over. We're at the Garden of Gethsemane. It was like a massive sea of humanity. What do you do with their garbage? What do you do with their plastic? So tell me how you approach that to a country who's... GDP may be so low and their national debt might be at 90 plus percent. How do you bring up sustainability? So this is a fun one, right? Because I say sustainability is no longer enough because I don't know if you have kids. I have two kids. I have one. There you go. So when you send your kids off to school, do you tell them, go be less bad today or be go, go be good, right? So sustainability is to do less bad which I say is not enough. We need to add back more or we need to be more good. It's not enough to not, uh, you know, pollute the environment. We need to suck carbon out of the environment. So the transition from less bad to more good is sustainability to regenerative travel, regenerative tourism, regenerative life and wellness. Listen, the UN Conference on Climate Change in Egypt is where you're going. And I keep screaming this for the mountaintops. Nobody listens. The 2022 prediction for the climate is dim, grim, and disaster. They put up alarm bells in their report. Look out, look out. If we don't do something now, human life on the planet is threatened for extinction. So how does this message not fall in deaf ears and how does it apply to tourism in Egypt? So I'll tell you, I'm probably being irrationally optimistic, but I'm, um, there's two parts to it. So I agree with the first part. I genuinely feel sometimes COP is, um, it's about a bunch of middle-aged men in suits who <laughs> argue over, you know, the placement of every coma and semicolon. And uh, then they spend three nights staying awake, just going through legal text and subtext. Having said that, I think COP also plays a very, very important role because it's the only platform where the biggest polluters in the world meet the poorest countries who 
who, who suffer the blame for the pollution, mm -hmm. but are not the ones who caused it mm -hmm. on an equal footing. Oh. So COP plays a very critical role from that perspective. Now, going back to why I'm irrationally optimistic, but probably stupidly so, but I think things are changing. Yeah. I think we have a critical mass of really cool, radical leaders who are not afraid to stick their neck out. Give me some examples. So you know how the turtle only wins when it sticks its neck out? We know the story of the turtle, the hare and the turtle. The turtle wins, but the turtle only wins because it's just, you know it decides to stick its neck out and run. Um, so I'm very optimistic about a bunch of leaders who are saying, you know, publicly taking a stand that um, I'm not going to be happy with status quo. I'm going to make things better. And when a CEO or a leader takes that public stance, I think um, I think it's it kind of engages the younger community and you know, create certain momentum, um, which I think is very important for solving this issue. So I think I've read where, um, you know, leaders of island nations are screaming because they're like, you're going to drown us. We're going to disappear if something isn't done. Who, who Can you name a couple leaders who are really embracing climate change action? So I know, um, so I'll go back to the Caribbean islands. Um, Ed Bartlett, Minister Ed Bartlett of Jamaica, mm -hmm. uh, not just because he's a f very good friend and probably biased, but I think he is unifying the Caribbean nations to the peril of ignoring all things ESG. Good. And that's not just the E, which is the environment part of uh, ESG, but it's also the social and the governance bits of ESG, right? How do you ensure the tourism dollars that you're getting is actually going to benefit your local community? Wow. So yeah. I think, yeah, they, um, there's so many examples. I do a lot of work in Saudi Arabia. Um, I chair a project um, which is called the Red Sea Global, which is along the Northwest Frontier. Um, again, the CEO, I think, is exceptional in not just rallying his entire organization uh, behind doing things the right way, even if it means it might be more expensive, even if it means it might be harder to execute. So I think it's a beautiful example when political will and financial capital with really sound, sane leadership comes together to achieve things which we thought was impossible a couple of years ago. Well, thank God an optimist is in your position. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Carillon Miami Wellness Resort, the only Florida spa ranked in the top 10 destination spa resorts in the U.S. by the readers of Condé Nast Traveler, is now offering one-of-a-kind personalized health retreats designed to align your physical, mental, and spiritual health. Each retreat offers a blend of rejuvenating spa therapies, cutting-edge diagnostics, and the guidance of critical experts along the way to help you navigate your path to optimal health. Whether you're targeting men's or women's health, weight loss, anti-aging, energy renewal, or something else, Carillon has a retreat with a customized plan that will help you meet your goals. In fact, there are two categories of themed wellness stays at Carillon. One is specialty retreats. Led by visiting experts, these happen about once a year. This year, for example, there's a retreat for people recovering from cancer, another that is a woman's retreat, and another called Couples Love Discovery. And then there are the ongoing five-day, four-night health retreats at Carillon with themes like Jumpstart Your Health, Serenity and Renew, and my favorite, 
the all-encompassing restorative retreat for two, where you and a partner are guided during your stay by the medical professionals at BioStation, South Florida's premier anti-aging and functional medicine practice. So besides all the fabulous resort and spa amenities, this retreat also includes extensive diagnostic testing for both of you that assesses over 100 biomarkers, including hormone, thyroid, and cardiovascular panels, a personalized wellness plan, and ongoing monitoring when you get home. Talk about next-generation wellness that can really facilitate a change in your life. That's why at Caroline Miami, they say, come as you are, leave as you've never been. And now, back to the show. We spoke to the gentleman who does is trying to save the Dead Sea yesterday, and he does swims all over. He's trying to save sharks that are massacred by the millions. So... I said to him, my biggest bugaboo when I was here is plastic. I mean, there's so many plastic bottles everywhere. What are you seeing uh, any action taking on that? So I, you know, I have a divergent view about this because I think plastics and single-use plastics, it's not enough, right? Because we're still talking about incremental change. Mm. And I think it's about time where we make a shift or a leap uh, from incremental change to radical transformation. Because the minute we keep talking about fixing the kinks in the armor, the mentality and the mindset is completely different. We need to go alt-control, delete, boom, and then do something completely divergent, which is, how do we do this right from the beginning? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see a lot more of that going forward. So give me a specific. How could you see an alt, like you deliver water in different ways? Is that what you're thinking? So I'll give you an example. I'll go back to Red Sea, where I've been involved in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Generally, when you build a destination, you are taking things from the environment. Mm -hmm. By deciding to only build in 10% of the overall area, which is as big as Belgium, they took the conscious decision, and it was was data-driven and led by science, Mm -hmm. to not, not just not damage the environment, but add back 30% biodiversity to the environment by building something or by developing something. So I think it's setting an example for, I think, the wider real estate sector that, listen, not only do you not have to be the bad person who's taking away from the environment, here is a tangible way for you to add back to the environment, to the people, to the locals, um, and do it right. Um, So you uh, concern yourself with doing the financials to say this is good business? Do you help them with that? So I, I... think of myself as the moral compass or the North Star, which is guiding um, the management to ensure uh, whatever decisions they make. Because at the end of the day, the buck stops with the management. A a board or an advisory board can, um, I always say, put their nose in the tent, but hands behind the back. uh, So we don't get involved with operational decisions or decision making, Mm -hmm. but we guide the management um, and hope that they do the right job. Yeah. And usually the money is there. I mean, the financial benefit is there with the right decisions, especially sustainably, right? Because I think we are at a tipping point now where if you're not sustainable, you're going to be called out, not just by the younger generation. Hmm. Look, there's a Greta Thunberg in every company now. So if we ignore the youth, and that's your employees, and that's the Gen Z, Gen uh, Millennials, Gen Y, I think you do so at your own peril because never before has 
a generation had so much power than the young now. I mean, your daughter, my kids, I mean, they call you out. And I'm talking political power, economic power, because in the next 15, 20 years, what we're going to see is this transfer of wealth from the baby boomers down to the millennials. An average millennial is already in their late 30s or in their early 40s mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So in the, imagine, fast forward 10 years, they're going to be the biggest decision makers for the family, right? right? right. And the biggest spenders. Yep. And they really care about values. So unless you as an organization resonate the values they stand for, they will boycott you like nobody's business. Oh my God. I mean, they're so right out there. Like I love their stance on mental wellness. And I think of our Global Wellness Summit. I mean, I don't know how you felt, Arana, when you came here, but we get a lot of people first time go, oh my God. This is my tribe. I can't believe what these people are talking about. Did you feel that way a little bit? I have rarely felt, and I am on stage probably 30 times, uh, you know, or more in a year. I've rarely felt so warmly welcomed. And um, when I came off the stage, I got a standing ovation. And yeah. It was deeply touching. I'm, I've been applauded before, but this was something completely yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. And I think I could say what I did and I could bring a piece of myself and a piece of my soul because of the audience. Mm -hmm. They just labbed it up and I got so much of energy back from it. It was just incredible. Well, the point I was making about your reception is that I believe that the Gen Y, Gen Zs are that way already. We're What we're talking about here is unique as grown adults, business people. Like, oh, you care about connection? Oh, you care about values? Oh, you care about... But they do. They talk about it now, right? So that will be the norm. It won't be as surprising is my prediction. But okay, you're standing ovation. Let's talk about your talk. <laughs> You're totally on the money about the Gen Y. I, I completely agree. Yeah. You feel like that? Totally. Yeah. Okay. But even when it comes to gender, because you brought that up, the yes. gender identification, acceptance, uh, that, that so much comes to mind. Did you see the performance of the autistic musician? I did. It was, um, it was just... It was just emotional, I think. <laughs> and it's funny because music has a way of making us think individually and collectively in a way I never really appreciated. It's uh -huh. just, um, yeah, Derek was Derek, yeah. and amazing. Yeah, his sister said to me that he loves America because everybody's like, he always goes, hello, I'm Derek. You know, he's blind and whatever. And he's, he said, in America, everybody goes, hi, Derek, how are you? And in some other countries, they're like afraid. Should yeah. I touch him? What should I do? So I feel like that is sort of a Gen Z mentality in some ways. Like, welcome. You know, yeah. what, do you, what do you bring to the table? Who are you? Right? Absolutely. And I think it's funny. Uh, I have rather controversial views as I do about most things you know by now. <laughs> but Good. I think we, look, I learned so much from my teenage son. Um, and this generational arrogance that we've had so far mm. where I'm right and I'm going to preach to you. That's mm. not going to fly anymore. No, no. We have tons of problems as humanity. And these, you know, some problems are too big for people to solve it on their own. Yeah. And we need the young with us, mm -hmm. um, and I say this with the most amount of respect, <clears throat> you need to collaborate um, and cooperate and get the best out of them because there's a completely different level. I mean, I knew nothing in my 20s. I was an utter waste. <laughs> I don't believe that for <laughs> a second. But I, the chairman, the co-chair of this summit is from Turkey, and he's a hotel developer, and I can't pronounce his name, but he has a girl here that works with him who's in her 20s. And we sat together at lunch and she was so well-spoken. I grabbed him. I'm like, you hire well. He goes, she's a sponge. We're learning. We have to keep everybody humble and learn from each other. So 
Oh, wait, I want to get back to your talk. Oh my God. How does someone on tourism talk about sex, gender, and equality when it comes to medical research? How did you get there? How did that happen? <laughs> it's a long journey. Um, I thought as a, a brown woman who looks younger than she is. Yes, I hate you. And I don't know why I'm smiling at you, but I am. No, kidding. I, um, I didn't want to be this flag bearer of all things gender diversity because it kind of felt self-serving, right? I mean, hey. Why not? <laughs> but then that's it. At some point I thought, if not me, then who? Especially in tourism, Especially Arana, because in tourism. there's so few girls in power. And it's a really tricky one, Kim, right? Because we have 54% women in the lower rungs of hierarchy but we have less than 4% women as CEOs. So we are what you call an inverted pyramid. So, you know, some problems, because there is no visible manifestation of the problem, there are so many women working in travel and tourism and hospitality so, yep. that you think there is no problem. Or there is a problem, but it's not my problem, <laughs> which is worse still. So you then really have to deconstruct the pyramid and say, what's happening? Yeah. Why are women falling off the cliff as they climb uh, the, the, the steps, so to speak, mm -hmm. and then there is the quintessential glass ceiling, which is very, very real. And I say it's not glass. F that. It's a concrete ceiling. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> Crazy. Um, you know, I've worked in tourism most of my career. My partner, Darlene, and I do, you know, PR for wellness travel a lot and wellness stuff. But I remember working in Hawaii, Tahiti, a lot of the islands. And the, it wasn't just women that were lacking in the ranks. It was locals. Yes. I mean, in Hawaii, no Hawaiians in management. In Tahiti, no Tahitians in management because they just don't get it. I'm from France and I'll teach you how. I'm from America, I'll teach you how. Are you seeing a change in that? It's changing. Uh, and I think which is the big focus of ESG now, unless you're benefiting the local community, you have no right to exist as a business. But you're completely right on the numbers. So... 54% women in travel and tourism compared to 39% in the wider economy. But we have only 4% CEOs. Oh, so shut up. 4%? 4% is CEOs, which is worse than mining, construction, banking, manufacturing. It's really bad. Uh, that's the first part. And then secondly, um, in our travel, tourism, and hospitality space, 80 to 85% of all businesses tend to be small, medium micro-enterprises, which are the small businesses on the ground in the local communities, right? right? And these 85 to 90% of businesses only get 15% of all benefits. I think someone should write that down. Ugh. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's changing because um, I think when you're coming up with master plans and strategies, you're, you're really saying, okay, what's your raison d'etre as in business? Yeah. And unless you are, and if, think about any, any business, right? The locals, the fishermen, the, the lady who's selling the... Uh, little handicrafts, they're the micro-businesses. That's right. And if you are not adding to their quality of life, are you a good business? Yeah. Um, it, would you say that, we keep talking about six senses, but I think it's them that are like putting dishes in the restaurants that are made from local potters and things like that. Or um, when I went to Petra, lucky me, um, there were craftsmen, you know, that I felt like we were buying directly from them. The way they talked, they designed whatever I was buying. So that felt good. I think it's a good step in the right <laughs> direction. I would just say Antic Census is a great company. They do some really good stuff for their staff. Uh, and I appreciate that. And I'm not here to call out, say, who's doing a good job or who's yeah. not. But as an yeah. industry, I think we need to be cognizant. Those are tactical implementations. We need to really make sure our values are good and aligned. And then strategically, we are delivering on those values. And how you do it is the tactics. So 
the three things need to kind of line up to kind of make it all come together? Well, I, I don't know. In my experience, it's if it is financially beneficial, it is a business, it will move the needle. But what always is cool to me is that making an environmentally sound decision, a culturally sound decision, typically means more revenue. Absolutely right. And which goes back to your gender point, um, which you asked, and I didn't probably answer the question, uh, and the talk. This is not about doing good. At the end of the day, it's a sane business decision. I'm a businesswoman, right? Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, investing in femtech is good. Investing in solving women's problems that have waited for decades to be solved is good. And I don't say this without fact and data on the ground. If you look at the last two years, the number of femtech startups that have gone on to not just raise capital, it's two and a half billion just in 2021. The market has market cap has gone up from 40.2 billion to 75 billion in the next five years. And we only started in 2016, right? So the rate at which these startups are becoming unicorns is unprecedented. Oh, cool. That is saying something. And we just need to follow the money. Follow the money, <laughs> which is good business. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Wellness retreats. And then we have what we call evergreen retreats, which mean you can pick any day. Like you can come in and go to uh, BioStation has, you know, jumpstart your health and wellness, you know, where they do all kinds of diagnostic testing. There's a hundred different biomarkers. So you can come in by yourself or with your husband or with your partner um, and and go through where you are in your health and wellness. And then they create a program to show you how to have the wellness that you desire. And then our other one that we offer that's evergreen, you can get it anytime, is Serenity and Renewal Retreat, which includes a lot of fun spot treatments, touchless you know, there's a $200 food and beverage credit. Um, they have uh, 75 different fitness classes they can participate in. Um, and the hydrotherapy circuit they can utilize every day if they want. So, and then on top of it, we have the specialty retreats. And I don't think people understand that your experts cover the gamut. I mean, it's not just you know, Botox and maybe getting something spruced up, but it's also financial health. It's relationship health. It's cancer recovery. So it's almost like a menu of wellness tools that they can sort of design for themselves depending on the weekend. Yeah. And the thing is our tagline, which I love when people think about it, it's called wellness your way. So wellness to you and to me may vary a little bit. It doesn't mean you're right or I'm right or we're wrong. It's more about what's happening in me. You know, what do I need to address? So I, you know, I think wellness your way is really what people need. And now back to the show. The other thing is our program has included so many Israeli entrepreneurs, but I still don't know how you went from tourism to uh, vaginal health. I don't know how so the research has come to. I will explain. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I am um, a resolute, um, resolute advocate and passionate, um, I think, lobbyist for all things equality. And oh. I speak a lot and do tons of research on gender gap, but in travel, tourism, and hospitality. And when you look at gender gap, you look at gender gap from an education perspective, from a chores perspective, which mm. is the gap we're never probably going to ever Depressing. close. <laughs> um, gender gap from an economic perspective. So if you look at VEF data, it's going to be 68 years till we are, till men and women are equal. 68 268. Oh, poo. Only. <laughs> wow. And I don't have time, right? Neither do you. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, as healthy as we are, I don't think we have turned 68 years. But anyway. And gender gap generally is 137 years. So which is effectively saying, oh my God, there's something wrong. And what struck me when I was doing the research is what about the gender gap in health and wellness? Okay. Because this is, well, name the most female-centric industry in the world, right? Travel. Travel, health, wellness, it's all interlinked. Oh, oh, we are oh. totally transversal as a sector, right? Because what we do affects agriculture, manufacturing, construction, health, wellness, the whole thing. And oh my God, women, and you've done that in one of your podcasts before, Kim, where you're saying- I was looking up the number, yeah. So only 4% of the overall global spend in um, health and wellness goes to solving women's problems. It's so crazy. 55, for instance, 55 million women at any given time are going through menopause. And yet, and I think that's just in the US, and yet they're told, well, shut up, just get a fan. You yeah. know, oh, get over yourself. <laughs> Let your hair go gray and fan yourself in the corner, right? Totally. And think about the repercussions again from a business perspective, right? Because an average woman is in her 50s by the time she hits the C-suite or the boardroom. Right. And that's where menopause is hitting you, boom, and you go batshit crazy. Or so they say you do. Right. So if you have a male boss, which goes back to the data that the majority of CEOs are still male, what do you do? Go up to the man and say, you know... Um, hot flash. <laughs> hot flash. Deal with me. I'm just crazy. I mean, and I think it's important we start discussing now before I'm in that situation 10, 15 years ago, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 years from now, I don't want to be in the middle of things to tackle this. I need to know how I'm going to deal with it now when I'm in my 40s. Oh, okay, okay, cool. And I also think when you think to the future, you were on that stage and you were saying things like, uh, what is the instrument used to examine the vagina? The speculum. The speculum was the same in 500 as it is in 2022. Is it's, that isn't this shocking? And I love how you started this by saying, if you look to the future, and if you want to look to the future, look to the past. Mm -hmm. Because no other thing tells a perfect picture or paints a perfect picture of the future than the past. And it all starts there. So going back to the speculum first... Um, the speculum was first used in 100 BC oh. in the Roman Empire. And if you now go up um, to a gynecologist to have your cervix examined, they still use the same speculum, which has hardly been revamped. And, it's, and it's, hardly is comfortable. Yes, and that's the it whole hurts. point. Exactly, mm. right? But it starts with history, right? If you look at historically how male and female bodies were looked at and how, he, when they were studying anatomy, they always considered female bodies incomplete and deformed. Ah! Aristotle, way back in 300 BC, said, oh, actually, you know, female body is exactly the same as the male body. It's just the genitalia is turned upside down. Inside out. Inside whatever. out. Correct. I mean, and you think, 
if forever you've just been studied because you reproduce. So everything is the same as men and women, but the, the, there's something wrong in the middle, which is the uterus, which is how you make a baby. Uh, <laughs> it, it kind of puts you on a footing where you are just, I think, buying into that social stigma. Mm. Because it's not about... Reproduction and sensual are two different things, right? Right. And that's one of the key problems, I think. Well, also that stunning statistic that you said, you know, the revolutionary birth control pill <laughs> was in the 70s. Can you imagine? And I has mean, not been changed since, really. I mean, contraception, the 70% the of women stop taking the pill because their concerns about... Um, it repercussions yeah, and side, side effects, effects mm -hmm. are not addressed. And if you look at the whole evolution of how contraception has evolved, nothing has changed since the sexual revolution, which was a movement of the 1960s and 70s. 70. And three things we can really be proud of is the birth control pill, which was in the 70s. Um, no, the birth control pill was in the 50s. The tampons came about in 1930s. And the self-adhesive panty liner came about in the 70s. Three things. And have they changed since? Has anything but changed? But that's the thing, right? They haven't because we still have the fear about the side effects, which is why 70%, uh, one, I mean, two out of three stop taking the pill. And it's again the same thing. I mean, you associate so much of social stigma to it that your voice is not heard. And when you raise it, it's gaslighting in reverse, which mm, is, mm, mm. oh, eat some chocolates, darling. Have a good cry. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and there's so much, like, it also hit me, I don't know, and we might embarrass our production team. We don't know, but we don't care. Um, when you think about the th hoops women go through for birth control, like an IUD, I would never, I mean, who wants a metal something up in their, I don't know, organs forever how long? Or a shot that lasts five years? What is that doing to your internal self? And guess what? A man could use a condom. How amazing. And yet, have you ever seen the reaction when you say that? Oh, I can't use a condom. It wouldn't be natural. What do you think it's natural to do all the things we have to do? So we could go on and on. There's no resentment here, though. Don't worry. <laughs> none at all. None at all. So building awareness, um, when did you realize, Arana, that you had the ability to communicate in a way that would be memorable? I still am working towards it, I think. Um, but I think if you have a voice today, any kind of voice, good or bad, um, it goes back to what I said during the speech. Every single one of us is a giant, right? Some of us might be smaller giants. The others are larger giants to a lot more people. Mm. But if you have a voice, mm -hmm. I think you have a responsibility to make sure you represent that voice uh, of the burdened, of the othered, which is the vast majority of women mm. and um, all kinds of other people. So I think, yeah, I, I, so I don't know if I have a voice or if I it's, think you do. I like um, to put you in on a secret. You have one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but thank you. Um, yeah, I think um, the Maslow's hierarchy initially stopped with self-actualization, right? Yes. Now we have self-transcendence, which is purpose. What is my reason for living? What is the meaning of my life? Mm. And I think no one really decides to screw up on purpose on purpose. Mm -hmm. But I think once you know, you have some kind of a voice, however small, use it. Yeah. Because silence is a misused privilege. Oh my 
God, I'm writing that down too. I I also would love for you to share with our listeners. You said yourself, you're a woman of color. You're a brown woman, and you're in an industry that's highly male. Um, how do you rev yourself up to go into a room and command attention? How do you do it? I don't. I just walk in and slay it, and. Um... <laughs> <laughs> And do so looking good, wearing heels. Uh, (laughs) um, Why not? I mean, beauty and brains is not, you know, beauty times brains is not a constant. So uh, why do we have to choose? I want both. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to young women choosing careers now? Um, So a few. um, Be humble and learn as much as you can. Be smart. So really make sure your rate of progression is fast. So Pick things that you need from others and then, you know, keep working on yourself. I think it's very important. But also don't listen to others who say that you have to do uh, things in a particular way to get X, Y, Z. No, your journey is your own. So follow the path that feels right for you. And finally, I think clap for other women. I'm the biggest cheerleader for other women. I don't care who gets where before me or after me. It doesn't matter. Their journey is their own. But cheer each other up and build each other up. I mean, every single opportunity you have to look someone in the eye, it's an opportunity to opportunity to build that person up, not tear them down. Yeah. And talk about return on investment. There you go. Typically. So I think that tourism, I love tourism. I've been in that industry for most of my career. And I read somewhere where tourism is the number one employer in the world. I don't know if I'm right, but I have read that. 100%. Um, that up right? until the pandemic, 10% of employment, 10% of global GDP was contributed by tourism. 10%, 10% of global GDP. 10% of employees or employment was contributed by travel, tourism, and hospitality as a sector. But here is the fun part. Up until the pandemic, of course, we lost a lot of numbers because it was the most affected sector. We were in the eye of the storm during covid But travel, tourism, and hospitality added one out of four new jobs. And I'm talking in a a world where we're losing jobs to automation and whatever, right? So um, I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's, um, yeah. Um, So it is such a powerful, powerful tool. But how is it a force for good? I know, but we'd love you to share. You know, I'll start at a personal level. When you travel, when you move, you are moved. Aww. There is no bigger medium of peace. We're here. We see the culture firsthand. Mm. Once you experience a culture, you can never hate the people from that country. Nothing builds bridges more than travel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's my one true addiction in life. Oh, you know what? We got to go to <laughs> Jordan on this trip. And I'd always admired that royal family from what I knew of it. And I had imagined what it might be like. But it wasn't until I was there. Our tour guide was so invested in us enjoying his country. I can't tell you. I, I had feedback that one tour was too long. He goes, really? That's how you... I mean, I've never had anyone care more. And, you know, like, here's some tea. You don't have to buy anything. Just come and visit us. I'll never forget Jordan. I mean, it was so amazing. I think it's a very special country. Um, And I think all of the Middle East, we have three key religions Uh, intersecting in this part. It's just the most amazing thing. And if you think about the most famous church here in Jerusalem, um, the the keys of the church are with an Arab family. 
with a Muslim family Crazy. for 800 years. It's yep. passed down generations. Fact or fiction? Fact, right? Fact check. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's absolutely so, true. Now, we know the power of tourism in, as a big umbrella industry. What do you think is the power of wellness tourism from what you've read and seen? I think fascinating, again, because on many fronts. Look, historically, if I had the dollars, if I had the money, if I was privileged enough, I would travel and go be on a self-indulgent wellness trip. <laughs> That's passe. Any hotel which is just providing a spa to treat the symptoms, so to speak, passe. How can you be well, which is a state of equilibrium, physically, mentally, spiritually, and how can that tie into the place where you are? So there is a sense-making and place-making which is happening with wellness, I think which is probably the, the most exciting thing that's happening in wellness. How do you give back to the community, to the people, just as much as you take from them and get back from them and come back on a journey where you're healing as much as they're healing you? Oh, that just reminds me again of Jordan. We took a Jeep tour in the Wadi Rum Desert, which is where they filmed the Martian. Or I don't know. It's where Lawrence of Arabia fought with the yes. Arab resistance. And our guide was a Bedouin, and he could speak no English, except he'd say, Lawrence House, you know, yeah, Lawrence yeah, of Arabia's yeah, yeah. house or whatever. And his name was Honey. That was his <laughs> name. And he taught us how to say sweetheart in Arabic. It was Habibi, I think. I don't yes, know. Yes, Habibi. Oh, baby, it was so great. And um, so the giving back, you hope, you know, you hope you give back. You hope you're where not to be the ugly traveler. But um, I also think wellness is connection. Wellness is nature. Um, we just interviewed somebody who works on urban bathhouses. So the healing of water, yes, you know, that it doesn't have such a big barrier to entry, right, is also wellness. Fascinating. And water is also leadership, right? Because think of it from a gender perspective, the best kind of leaders are fluid, like water. Shut up! Mutable, like air. They don't take, they're not rigid. In the world that we live in, which is a VUCA world, where there is one crisis thrown at us, you know, probably every minute, you need to be like water. The best leaders are like water. Fluid. And you know what spa means? Solace per aqua, health by water. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, listen, Aradna, I love talking to you. I hope we stay friends. I hope you can come back to visit us. If we can help you keep your energy up and keep telling your stories of equality, we'll be right here for you. Thanks Thank for talking. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Our pleasure. Okay, you energized yet? If you liked that, I encourage you to look up Rodna's recent TED Talk entitled, Don't Be a Gender, Be an Airbender. I just loved our conversation. Talk about the politics of the possible. And then, you know, I found a spa business cover story on Rodna that summed up her goals. It said her company's mission is to make sustainability, community empowerment, and diversity and inclusion non-negotiable pillars for every business in the travel, tourism, and hospitality sector. That is just cool. But come to think of it, Aradna is a wonderful example of the kind of global leaders that inspire attendees at each of the annual Global Wellness Summits. Make it your aim to attend this year's summit. It will be held in the fall in Qatar. Meanwhile, 
You can keep up to date with the latest on the summit as well as bonafide wellness trends and research at globalwellnesssummit.com and at its sister organization, globalwellnessinstitute.org. Thanks for following us on all the socials and for helping spread the word about this podcast. We work so hard to make a must-hear for you or a must-see for our friends on YouTube. This is your host, Kim Marshall. Can't wait to get together again. Global Wellness Conversations is produced by the Global Wellness Summit and Swell the Agency. Executive producer, Swell the Agency co-founder, Kim Marshall. Audio engineering is by Nova Media. Supervising producer, Heidi Moon. Senior producer, Darlene Fisk. Associate producer, Sarah Molina. Theme music by Omar Akram for Mindstream Wellness Music.